Introducing TurboGrafx-16, the next generation video game system. It's four times faster, so the games are more exciting. There are almost ten times as many colors, so the arcade quality graphics are even more intense. And you can expand your system with a CD player for CD games with sound effects that are turbocharged. TurboGrafx-16 from NEC, the higher energy video game system. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's, That's right. right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. I don't have any notes. Um, I don't think Producer Doug sent us anything. No, no pre-read to the joking around stuff. We got a phishing scam. Fishing with a P or an F? With a P. I'd rather have it be a phishing scam where somebody with invites us. Yeah, with an F. <laughs> And they're <laughs> scamming us for fish. Someone asks you if you want to go fishing, and you're like, absolutely, where do I go? And they tell you, and you go, and they don't show up. And it's up. not, or it's not a lake. It's not a lake, it's the desert. It's the desert. <laughs> the opposite of a lake. Which, if you if you fall for a fishing scam and go to a desert instead of a lake, you have a lot of stuff going on. We did get a fishing scam, I don't recall what it was about. It was a, it was a Facebook one. They were just like, you need to update your meta account or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get, we get reminded regularly that we're violating terms of services which we're not yeah i don't know what terms of services we're violating besides being some wacky brothers that's right or um having some interesting podcasts perhaps our podcasts are so interesting there are people coming after us because of their interestingness anyway speaking of interesting things seth what have you been recently playing first off i beat killer frequency nice Great game. Definitely recommend it, especially if you're into Firewatch. We don't always talk about games that we've beaten that we've previously talked about. So I like that it definitely implies that we play a lot of games, but we don't beat them. Hey, whoa, whoa. We never said that we were good at beating games. We just said that we play a lot of games. That's true. We do micro dosing of video games. We play only uh, four seconds a day, but we play uh, 400 games. Right, yeah. That's how you enjoy video games now. Anyway, I beat Killer Frequency. Really good game. I can't say good enough things about it. It's also not like... It's it's like baby horror so like it's a game that you can play i i had issues playing it with the lights out because it was i was also under the covers but if you play it in a normal lit room or perhaps if you're braver than i uh you can just play it through anyway i'm not here to talk about killer frequency i'm going to be talking about the game that i've been recently been playing after killer frequency which is warhammer 40k dawn of war uh it was released back in uh 2004 it is a real-time strategy game developed by relic entertainment and and was published by THQ and is set in the grim dark universe of Warhammer 40k which is a game world that was developed by Games Workshop and is the 40,000th year in the future where everything is war it's a grim time and perhaps it is a little dark and that is why it is grim dark <laughs> grim dark is when everything is sad and hopeless while also the lights don't really work anyway I love the 40k universe I actually like it more than the normal Warhammer universe though I do 
love the Skaven from the normal Warhammer universe. I especially love like 90s Skaven from like the miniatures, but okay. I like a lot more of Warhammer 40k than I do of the normal Warhammer, specifically when it comes to the just how the miniatures look, because uh, I never played either the tabletops. I also felt like when I grow when growing up that the 40k universe was more underrepresented in the world of gaming because a lot of like Warhammer stuff is very similar to like Warcraft since they kind of ripped off each other and there was I feel like more Warcraft and fantasy related stuff growing up versus Starcraft and Warhammer 40k stuff which is also they're kind of very similar anyway there's been a lot of 40k games that were coming out recently which is great but in 2004 when I was younger than I am today Dawn of War came out and it was probably one of the most faithful reproductions of an actual Warhammer game and through the campaign you play as a chapter of the space marines called the blood ravens who aren't like one of the 20 main chapters they're like a sub chapter maybe of the blood angels i don't know if necessarily know essentially in warhammer 40k there is an emperor the god emperor he's mostly dead kind of also alive but he had 20 children and they are called the primarchs and those 20 sons all started space marine chapters 18 of them are in the in the universe two of them went missing and we don't talk about them half of them betrayed the emperor and became chaos and blood ravens are what's known as loyalists meaning that they still fight for the emperor and they fight chaos but like I said before, they're not one of the 18 or 20 founding chapters, so they're a little bit on the side. Anyway, it's a great game. It's got a really good story. It's got really good acting. Well, and by that, I mean voice acting. And by really good, I mean over-dramatized screaming about uh, Space Marines. I think they're like rallying each other, but I, I do think it's kind of interesting that a unit is just screaming what they are <laughs> at the enemy as they charge. Space Marines attack! It does take an interesting take on a uh, RTS. Instead of mining like a resource like gold, uh, you actually have to go out and capture points to get more requisitions. So in order for you to get more troops, you need to capture more points. So you need to advance your line and you need to upgrade those points to get more requisition. And it ends up being a, a, a very different take than like in other RTS games that are resource bases that are like a resource based closer to home. You can turtle as a strategy so you can just build, 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 and not go anywhere. Uh, where Dawn of War really pushes you to go and explore because if you're going to build up your points faster, you need to take strategic points. Also, it really shows like an ebb and flow of the battle. As you take other strategic points from your enemy, you know that you're weakening them. It's a great game. There's a lot of shouting of Space Marines. Uh, it's a really faithful rendition of the game. And uh, it had uh, a couple of expansion packs and sequels. Uh, some of the expansion packs and sequels, I think most of them are good, uh, especially the early stuff. I know the f the first one talks you. I think you could play as the Imperial Guard for most of the expansion, which is great because that's a I do you do play as the Imperial Guard, and that's great because the Imperial Guard is a great army where it's just where everybody else is an alien, a uh, heretic, or a demon, or a space marine. Uh, the Imperial Guard are just humans. <laughs> And they use uh, flashlights to fight everybody. Uh, nice. They're technically uh, las guns, but apparently las guns are so weak they're referred to as flashlights. But you get to play them in the, the following game, which or the expansion, which is great because the Imperial Guard it would probably be an army that I would actually buy if you didn't need so many of them. Anyway, I actually think that we probably 
O Dawn of War episode in its own right, so I'll stop going on about it. But regardless, it's a good game, even if it came out uh, almost 20 years ago, Yeah, which is scary. Zach, what have you been recently playing? I've been playing a game that did not come out almost 20 years ago. It came out a couple months ago, and that is Supless. I think I saw this game or told you about it. Yeah, I think it was back when we used to do the Byway Pass. I think it was a Byway Pass of yours to me and i did end up buying it so it was a it was a buy in the long run but supplice is a retro inspired shooter built in the gz doom engine and uh like the games that it was inspired by it's a fast-paced action heavy shooter that pushes the doom engine really to its limit uh you play as a member of a team that was planning to terraform in various new worlds however the experiments your team was performing goes wrong and monsters attack so you have to fight biomechanical terrors and it's really up to you and you alone and your plethora of weapons to fight off these monsters uh you have like a triple barreled shotgun as opposed to a double barreled shotgun that you can either fire all three barrels at once or you can fire one barrel at a time there's a assault rifle which you can dual wield there's a, a flamethrower there's like a plasma weapon so there's all sorts of different weapons that you get um your starting weapon is a drill because your character is first and foremost a scientist engineer so the tag not the tagline but there's an ad for the game when you go to its steam page that says this is not a drill and then it shows your character with the drill and it says this is a drill <laughs> shows your character drilling into the enemies that's fun you pretty much have to fight off various like zombie like creatures you have to fight off these like floating weird mouth monsters that charge at you there are these kind of more robotic like creatures that attack you there's all sorts of different enemies that you'd expect in this style of game i will say it's more similar to doom than it is to duke nukem um so there is less banter of your character your character doesn't really talk much so if you're kind of more into the fast-paced kind of bombastic of duke nukem but without all the funny quips give this game a chance and that's supplice or supplice i think it's supplice supplice <laughs> supplice that's what you say when you're um combing your hair and you find a little white dust <laughs> supplice so gross anyway for today's episode we're going to get into the topic of a game console that we i think have alluded to a bunch of times because this game console has certainly seen ports of games we've talked about to it but it's one that we've never really focused on and that console is the TurboGrafx-16 or the PC Engine, depending on what part of the world you live in. Oh, you know what? For some reason, I always thought there were two different things. Yeah, they kind of are, but they're they're about the same two different things as the Mega Drive and the Genesis. Or the Famicom and the Nintendo, where they are two different things, but they are also the same. Anyway, in terms of the history of the TurboGrafx-16, the system, the TurboGrafx-16 or the PC Engine, got its start when two companies got together to make it. These two companies are NEC and Hudsonsoft. NEC was founded back in 1898 in Tokyo, Japan, originally as Nippon Electric Limited Partnership. The company was founded by Kunihiko Iwadare and Takashiro Maeda. They had an early partnership with an American telecommunications company called Western Electric, who were planning to expand into the Japanese telephone market. In 1899, Japan and the U.S. updated their treaty, and on the same day, Nippon Electric Company Limited was established with Western Electric.
Electric, becoming the first Japanese joint venture with foreign capital. The early days of the company were primarily involved in production, sales, and maintenance of telephones and switches. In 1903, they provided the Japanese Ministry of Communications with a common battery switchboard, and telephone subscribers rose, and by 1907, there were around 95,000 subscribers throughout Japan. You want to hear a sad fact? What's a sad fact? Western Electric went defunct in 1996 and got purchased by Nokia. That is a sad fact. Now, another sad fact was that in 1923, Japan was hit by an earthquake, the Great Kanto Earthquake, which leveled four of the factories of NEC and killed 105 employees. The earthquake also destroyed various telephone offices and service was halted due to damage to cable lines. So the Japanese Ministry of Communications got to work and they started installing automatic switching systems, which would hopefully make it easy for any future potential earthquakes to not destroy infrastructure as strongly as this one did. And they also transitioned to radio broadcast. NEC officially began radio communications in 1924, with the first radio broadcaster in Japan being Radio Tokyo. NEC also provided phototelegraphic equipment to broadcast the ascension ceremony of Emperor Showa, who some of us in America might know as Hirohito. And uh, as you may know, the 1920s would lead into the 1930s and 40s, and there was an event that would happen during this time that uh, was quite disastrous and involved Japan, and that would be the World Wars especially World War II. The war would also place hardship on not only Japan, but also the company NEC. And in 1938, plants in Mita and Tamigawa were placed under military control, with supervisors being replaced by military officials. One day, your boss is Bob. The next day, your boss is Colonel Bob. <laughs> but in 1941, uh, Japan passed the Enemy Property Control Law, and NEC's shares owned by International Standard electric company of subsidiary of Connecticut-based International Telephone and Telegraph Corporation, which was affiliate of Western Electric, were seized. And in 1943, Japan passed the munitions company law and the NEC plants were fully under military control. Being that they were also now military targets and that we might have known where they were, NEC plants would then be leveled by military attacks from U.S. forces and were heavily firebombed, which I feel is a little possibly a little dirty pool on our part. <laughs> They're like, these things are now military, tar military targets that you previously dealt with. Excellent, we know where they are. The war would come to an end and control of NEC would return back to the civilians. Uh, major plants would reopen in 1946. NEC would also begin research into transistors in 1950 and soon would begin researching semiconductors. This research led to the development in the 1980s of the NEC PC-8800 series of computers as NEC entered the computer market. They would quickly rise to become a major player in the Japanese PC industry, holding 80% of market share at one point. Toward the tail end of the 1980s, they would establish a working relationship with Hudson Soft. Hudson Soft was founded in 1973 by two brothers, Yuji and Hiroshi Kudo. Yuji and Hiroshi were fond of trains and named the company after the Hudson class of locomotives, also called the 464 engines due to the wheel alignments of 4, 6, and then 4. Their earliest venture was an amateur radio shop that was called CQ Hudson, where they sold telecommunication devices and photographs. And in 1975, this expanded to selling personal computers 
computer products. The company soon evolved into developing software for the growing Japanese home computer market. Now, in the early 1980s, Hudson became Nintendo's first third-party software vendor for the Famicom. Their title, Load Runner, sold 1.2 million units after it was released in 1984. They would also work on games for various home computers, such as the ZX Spectrum, MSX, and the NEC PC-8801. Some of these games included versions of Nintendo titles like Super Mario Brothers and Excite Bike. Though, these weren't always one-to-one -one ports. For example, Hudson Super Mario Brothers Special has original levels that are separate from the original Famicom version, making it Whoa. kind of its own unique game. Its own Super Mario Brothers universe. Yeah, which is weird. Like, think about Nintendo nowadays being like, hey, random company, port our best-selling game to some computer. <laughs> And get your own exclusive levels. <laughs> yeah. Now, in 1987, Hudson began developing hardware and would begin work on a system codenamed C62, named after the JNR Class C62 steam locomotive because they love trains. There's a lot of material and names to take for, to choose from. <laughs> Very true. This work was in collaboration with NEC, as NEC wanted to enter the home console market, but they lacked any experience in the video game industry. NEC and Hudson really came across each other by what you can call chance. You see, when NEC approached Hudsonsoft, Hudson had just been rejected by Nintendo after they attempted to sell some advanced graphics chips to Nintendo. So really it was a match made in heaven because NEC was like, hey, do you want to make a video game console with us? And Hudson was like, that's funny. We have these chips that are perfect for a video game console. So the company started working together and they were able to finalize the system that they both envisioned, the PC Engine, which was released in October of 1980. The PC Engine was a unique looking machine. It's actually pretty square and white. I don't even know how best to describe it. It looks kind of like a perfect square with a weird little chunk out of it where you insert the cards. As opposed to other video game systems, it didn't use standard cartridges. Rather, it used what were called Hue cards. These were thin These were thin cards about the size of a credit card, but a little bit thicker, that contained a small PCB. So instead of having chunky cartridges that came in boxes, you had Hue cards, which came in jewel cases. And the Hue cards, you just stick right in your machine, turn it on, there you go. The PC Engine ran on a Hudson Soft Hue C6280, which was an improved version of the Western Design Center 65CO2 microprocessor. It featured 8 kilobytes of RAM and 64 kilobytes of VRAM. The system output either composite or RF signal and featured an expansion port on the back, which could be used for an optional CD unit. After finding success in the Japanese market, which we'll touch upon in, in the numbers section, NEC wanted to bring the system to the United States because as we've talked before the pretty much two biggest game markets were the Japanese and the American. Early market testing found that the name PC Engine was unattractive and people found that the system itself was a bit too small looking. NEC did some reworking and came with a larger looking shell for the system giving it a more futuristic design. They also renamed it to the Turbo Graphics 16 and this is to emphasize the 16-bit GPU and graphics is spelled with an X because it's cool. Well, actually with an F and an X. It's super cool. And what's great is, first of all, let's just really enjoy the upgrade that it got going to the American market when it comes to the logo. So the PC engine was dark letter PC star white lettering with border engine with a circle behind it. The Turbo Graphics 16 looks like a metal button where it's like black with yellow text and it says turbo and graphics 
and guess what? Turbo and graphics, same letters. And then they put the 16 in between. Also, the system does get significantly larger. The Turbo Graphics is about double the size of a PC engine, and I really hope that it's empty. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've picked one up before. They are pretty light. This redesign process took some time, and the Turbo Graphics 16 wouldn't debut in the U.S. until August of 1989 to New York City and the Los Angeles area as a test market. The system would retail for $199.99, which is equivalent to $471.2023. And the games would sell for $49.99, which is equivalent to $118.2023, which I just feel like is a little much when you're selling your games for a third of the price of your system. So either the system's really cheap and the games are just really expensive, but I I mean, 118 Fair, a good game. chunk of the system was plastic. <laughs> That's true. Most of it was air, <laughs> which came free. What also came free was Keith Courage in Alpha Zones, which would be the pack-in game. There was a problem, though. Two weeks after the Turbo Graphics hit the test market, Sega released the Genesis to the same test markets. Uh, in the numbers, we'll touch more about how this impacted the Turbo Graphics, but let's just say the Genesis is probably more well-known than the Turbo Graphics. A CD-ROM add-on called the CD-ROM Superscript 2, uh, as also called the CD-ROM Squared, in Japan, and the Turbo Graphics-CD in the U.S. was launched in 1988 in Japan and 1989 in the U.S. This add-on allowed for games to be played on CD as opposed to the standard Hue cards. One of the launch titles for the Turbo Graphics-CD was a port of Street Fighter called Fighting Street and the game Monster Lair. There was also a portable version of the system that was released called the PC Engine GT in 1990 with the US releasing of with the US release called the Turbo Express, which we've seen. They're expensive. So the Turbo Express would only be able to play Hue card games because you couldn't bring a CD around with it yet. I think it would just be probably an awkward, like, you, you know, because it's supposed to be portable. So it'd be awkward to attach a CD add-on. <laughs> yeah, it would be. But it could play Hue cards. And it did have a backlit screen, which, as uh, Sega would learn with the Game Gear, a backlit screen meant two things. A short battery life and a high price point, which is one of the things, like, when you think about the handheld genre of consoles game boy this was still the period of time where game boy was just dominating and like they didn't introduce a backlit screen i don't think for another game boy advance sp was the first one with a backlight when did that come out 2003 so another 13 years until nintendo had actually had a backlight and up until the time that they released that and further on they dominated the handheld genre which is funny because it apparently having a backlight didn't really do much in regards to sales in 1991 nec released an upgraded an upgraded version of the cd-rom squared which they called the super cd-rom squared this contained an upgraded bios that increased the buffer ram from 64 kilobytes to 256 kilobytes uh, this version was also the one included in the pc engine duo which was a new model of the console that had the cd-rom unit built in but 
but you could also purchase the upgraded unit if you own the original PC Engine. Look at that backwards compatibility. In the US, we received the Turbo Duo, which, like the PC Engine Duo, combined the updated CD-ROM drive with the TurboGrafx-16 base capabilities. This was introduced in 1991 at the price point of $299, which would be equivalent to about $640 today. In total, there were 686 games released for the system in Japan and the US combined. Though not all of these games were released in Japan and that would come to America, and also vice versa, not all of these games were released in America that would come to Japan. Now, while some games people may be familiar with just by naming them, Bomberman, Double Dragon 2, Fantasy Zone, Pac-Land, there were also some games that were exclusive to the console. This includes Dungeon and Dragons, Order of the Griffin, a tactical role-playing game by Westwood Associates, The Legendary Axe, a horizontal platform game developed by Victor Musical Industries, which, yes, is Victor RCA, the record company. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Metal Stoker, a multidirectional shooter developed by Sankindo. Final Lap Twin, a racing slash role-playing game developed by Nova which is a game I want to check out, and Airzonk, which was a horizontally scrolling shooter developed by Red Company. Outside of exclusives, some games also saw their start on the PC Engine. Uh, for example, Bonk's Adventure, which was ported to the NES, the Game Boy, and the Amiga. Also, the compilation East 1 and 2 was originally for the PC Engine CD, but would be ported to Windows, PS2, Nintendo DS, PSP, Android, and iOS. And this was a graphical enhanced remake of the these games. That's the letter Y with an S. Um, these are role-playing games that have been around forever. Now, the PC Engine and its CD-ROM add-on would go on to sell incredibly well in Japan. PC Engine alone sold uh, half a million units in its first week of release, and the CD-ROM unit would go on to sell 60,000 units in its first five months. In 1989, it's reported that 1.2 million consoles sold and more than 80,000 CD units sold. By 1995, NEC would sell 5.94 million PC Engine units and 1.92 million CD-ROM units in Japan. The US release, not so exciting. One problem with the release in the US was NEC's packing game, Keef Courage in the Alpha Zones. While this was a Hudson Soft developed game, Western audience weren't really familiar with it. Sega, who released the Genesis just a few weeks after the Turbo Graphics launch, packed an Altered Beast, which was an arcade game that was already popular. So if you're going to the store, you could look at and buy the new console, the Turbo Graphics, which came with some random game for a very expensive price. Especially if you're thinking, let's say you have $400 or $500 in early 90s money, you could buy just one TurboGrafx and get the pack-in game and maybe have enough money left over to buy yourself a slushy. <laughs> or you can buy Sega Genesis, which came with an arcade game that you already knew about, and you may be, even, may be able, able to buy something else. And also, think about it this way. The reason Seth and myself were a Sega family is because Seth went to a friend's house and played Rocket Knight and said, I want to play Sega games. So our father went out and bought a Sega. Yeah. In a similar vein, a, a child could have gone to the arcade and play Altered Beast and went home that night and said, I want to play Altered Beast at home. So the parent goes to the store the next morning and says, what system can I buy that has Altered Beast on it? And guess what? It was the Sega. NEC of America also overhyped the sales and produced 750,000 units. So they were like, let's do it. It's going to be big. Let's forecast, buy lots, make lots of units. Actually, 
the demand was far lower. Funny enough, this was actually a good deal for Hudson Soft because they made money for every console produced not whether it was sold or not because they were buying and and nec was buying the consoles from hudson soft another issue of the u.s was that the marketing couldn't keep up with the powerhouse that was nintendo or sega who was dropping millions of dollars on marketing they just couldn't couldn't edge them out nec would claim that they sold 750,000 units of the turbo graphics by 1991 and sold a half a million of cd-rom units worldwide in total between the u.s and japan 6.59 million PC Engine TurboGrafx-16 units were sold by 1995. In terms of the legacy, in 1994, NEC released 32-bit PC FX exclusively in Japan. This system was an entirely updated version of the PC Engine with an updated CPU and a new tower-like form factor. It was intended to be an official successor to the PC Engine, but ultimately only sold 400,000 units in four years and was discontinued, considered a major flop for the company. So, they uh, hit it out of the park with the PC Engine and didn't quite make it to first base with the PC FX. In 2006, Nintendo would release a number of TurboGrafx-16, TurboGrafx-CD, and Turbo Duo games to their virtual console service for the Wii, Wii U, Nintendo 3DS, and also 10 TurboGrafx-16 games were also released on PSN in 2011 as individually downloadable titles. In 2010, Hudson created the TurboGrafx-16 Game Box, which was an app that you could download where you could buy and play some TurboGrafx games via a store. In 2012, there was a game called Hyperdimension Neptunia Victory, which has a character named Pishi, who is named and inspired by the PC Engine, because all the characters in Hyperdimension Neptunia are based on consoles. In 2016, rapper Kanye West, also known as Yee, intended to release an album called TurboGrafx-16, but it was scrapped. And lastly, in 2019, Konami released the TurboGrafx-16 Mini, a mini console that contains built-in games. This system would be delayed initially due to supply chain issues in 2020, but was released in May of 2020. Fun fact, the TurboGrafx-16 Mini is mostly sold out everywhere, so you could buy it for the low price of $300. (laughs) So for $100 more than the original TurboGrafx, you could get yourself a Mini one. Well, that will do it for our TurboGrafx-16 episode. We're going to get into our recently Nope. We're going to get into our retro rewind. Recently played. Our recently rewound. Recently rewound. I guess we did recently play them. So Seth had me play The Lawnmower Man for the Game Boy. Based on the movie from 1992 of the same name, you play as Dr. Lawrence Angelo, a scientist working for Virtual Space Industries in Project 5, a secret research facility that is looking to increase the intelligence of primates using drugs and VR. Sounds fun. In the Game Boy version, you run through a town and you shoot chimpanzees and random dudes. That's pretty much all that I could get. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes you do enter a weird first-person world where you have to avoid obstacles. It's not very good, but I did have a fun time playing it because it's just weirdly weirdly fun primarily though because i just find game boy games from this era to be weirdly charming there's like they try so hard to make things look good but they just don't it just reminded me of playing the james bond game on the game boy which is this weird like top-down perspective it looks almost like a role-playing game but it's not game it just kind of reminded me of that it's got a weird charm to it does it hold up absolutely not seth next week you can play alien versus predator for the super nintendo nice meanwhile zach had me play michael jordan chaos in the windy city uh did i enjoy it 
Uh, no. Uh, this is a 1994 side-scrolling platformer developed by Electronic Arts and published by Electronic Arts where you play as Michael Jordan and you don't play basketball or baseball or golf or anything that Michael Jordan is known for. You instead run around these gigantic stages looking for kidnapped teammates who were kidnapped by a scientist named Maximus cranium i didn't like it because i was confused uh, i read the instructions but the controls were very loose and where to go was very obtuse i didn't actually know what i was doing and i couldn't figure out how to get past a certain part because i think i didn't know how to dunk even though i knew all the controls i was pushing the right buttons it just wasn't working anyway if you enjoy obtuse platform 2d side scrollers that cater to a more of an exploration versus a time to get to the end environment you might actually like michael jordan Chaos in the Windy City. It's not timed, so like you can play through the levels as slow as you want. And there is some cool platforming and kind of puzzles you got to figure out. There is an interesting fact that he dribbles the basketball the entire time, which which is, I guess, unique because why is he dribbling the basketball? I mean, I know why he's dribbling it because he's because a basketball he gotta, player. Otherwise, you'd be traveling. <laughs> yeah, but he'd be traveling while he's in a like abandoned factory building actually no he's in the prisons in the first the first stage is prison cells and you have to explore chicago and the various different wonderful environments like prison in chicago anyway nintendo power they did not like it at all they rated it the seventh worst game of all time in 1997 now what i say to that is if you know what you're going into you may actually like it did i not really there's a part of me that's just thinking and thinking about maybe I could play it and actually get farther and figure out why Maximus Cranium kidnapped all of Michael Jordan's teammates while they were going to a Scottie Pippen charity event. Anyway, does it hold up? Uh, I'm gonna say no because of the loose controls. But if you're okay with loose controls, then by all means. Uh, Zach, next week you can play Steel Panthers, which was released in 1995 for DOS. I'm not looking forward to that, but I also am well thank you for joining us for classic gaming brothers if you have any memories of the turbo graphics 16 feel free to email us at classic brothers at gmail.com feel free to visit our website www.classicgamingbrothers.com we're on facebook classic gaming brothers instagram classic gaming brothers twitter cg brothers pod like and subscribe to us on all the various podcasting applications out there be it iHeartRadio, podbean or itunes and with that seth do you have anything you want to contribute to this conversation no okay wait don't play games like my brother. And don't play games like my brother. I've been Seth. And I've been Zach. And we've been the classic gaming brothers. That's, That's right. right.